Tonight I'm going to talk about the state of having no attachment to outcome. Non-attachment to outcome. And I'll begin with reading a quote from a, one of the classics on this topic, the Bhagavad Gita. Now, before I read this, I'll, I'll just say the Bhagavad Gita, one of the things you'll hear mentioned in here is the term karma yoga. So, before the Bhagavad Gita in the, in the Veda, the, the standard yoga was jnana yoga, wisdom yoga. It was thought that if you wanted to be enlightened, you'd have to go off, be a renunciant, read, read the sacred text, meditate all the time, get far away from the world. And the Bhagavad Gita was, was radical in the sense that it said, no, there's this other way, karma yoga, which is the, the spiritual discipline of selfless service in the world, being radically engaged in the world. Um, this is actually what Gandhi based his life on. He based his life on the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is framed, it's a conversation between the god Krishna and the warrior Arjuna. So this is Krishna speaking. Therefore, always perform your duty efficiently and without attachments to the results, because by doing work without attachment, one attains to the supreme. King Yanaka and others attain perfection by karma yoga alone. You should perform your duty with a view to guide people and for the universal welfare of the society, because whatever noble persons do, others follow. Whatever standard they set up, the world follows. O Arjuna, there is nothing in the three worlds that should be done by me, nor is there anything unobtained that I should obtain, and yet I engage in action. Because if I do not engage in action relentlessly, O Arjuna, people would fall People would follow my path in every way. These worlds would perish if I do not work, and I shall be the cause of confusion and destruction of all these people. So this idea that that Krishna himself is engaged in this constant action, action without attachment to results, and that's part of what sustains the universe. So it's a very high ideal no attachment to outcome. It, it's recommended in all kinds of fields, you know, in, in business and test taking and dating and, you know, all sorts of things. You'd be better off if you had no attachment to outcome. So how do we get there? How do we cultivate no attachment to outcome? The first step is simply training the monkey mind, getting, getting some discipline to attention, being able to quiet the monkey mind, which is, of course, what we, what we practice in meditation. Because the monkey mind loves to go to the past and go to the future. It loves to send emotional energy into the past and into the future. And our bodies are in the present moment. When we send emotional energy to the past and future, we're sending it away from our body away from our vital centers. And this has the effect over time of making people feel depleted because they're, they're sending their energy away from themselves, you know. Often if we are attaching to some kind of outcome that's driven by either 
fantasies of some kind, or worries and anxiety. And it's important to understand that if we're, we're experiencing fantasies frequently, or if we're experiencing worries and desires frequently, these are addictions. They're addictions as serious as any kind of chemical addiction. You know, and the, the funny thing is we think we're having the fantasy. We think we're the one doing the worrying. You know, and that we know this from the psychology of addiction, that it it presents the illusion that everything's a free choice. You know, the, the alcoholic that says, well, I'm choosing the next drink. It has no power over me. You know, this kind of thing. So the best thing to do when you notice yourself having having any kind of story about what the outcome is going to be, as much as possible, bring your attention back to the present moment. Where is my body? What is happening in the present moment? You know, mindfulness practice can be very important. You know, what, what is present in my present situation? That kind of thing. Now, what's tricky about the future, the future is unknown. Now, of course, there's parts of the future that are, you know, with reasonably high probability that we can predict, you know. But even if we, you know, even if we have a job or a fixed schedule and we we kind of know what that schedule is the next day, it's the nature of the future that life always surprises us. Life has 10,000 ways to surprise us, you know. And so there's an important way that the future is simply unknown. And the strategic mind doesn't like the unknown. The thinking mind doesn't like the unknown at all. Um, Carl Jung pointed out that whenever we're faced with the unknown, basically we just fill it in with whatever is in our unconscious. You know? And it actually can be a, a, a fascinating exercise for all of us, you know. Times when you, when you are facing the unknown and then some kind of story comes into your head and starts to fill in that unknown. And you, you start to notice over several occasions the same kind of story occurs whenever you're facing the unknown. That's an important thread to follow. What, that, that story is coming from within you. You know, what... What's the origin of the story? Where is it coming from in your body? You know, this sort of thing. Real mastery of the unknown is when we can hold the unknown with inner silence. When we can just face the unknown with complete silence. And of course, it takes years of practice and meditation to be able to hold inner silence. But that, that's one of the values of inner silence. Another part of a kind of reason that people attach to the unknown has to do with what I would call urgency. We have urgency when we have unmet needs. Now, sometimes those are physical needs. And I think we've all had the experience of, you know, there's a certain amount of urgency if we're incredibly hungry or we really have to go to the bathroom or something like that, you know. 
but those are usually relatively straightforward. Like we, we, we know what's going to satisfy that need. And it's usually in most ordinary circumstances, it's not too hard to satisfy that need. Um, emotional urgency is much trickier. Emotional urgency often arises from early childhood wounding, from places in us that have been long neglected, long ignored, um, You know, and then something happens in the world, some, you know, a job situation, a romance situation, you know, something where it looks like there's going to be some kind of possibility. And, you know, some part of us that has been in the closet for decades suddenly feels like, oh, this might be a place where I'm going to get some kind of recognition that I was looking, you know, I've been hoping it decades for, you know. And so then we feel a kind of urgency, uh, an urgency to hear from that person, to have that conversation, to get that result. Um, it's a very important exercise, I think, for all of us to track when is there urgency in our body? You know, when are we truly present? And when is there this urgency of something has to be different? You know, something's missing, you know, this kind of thing. And again, if it's not an immediate physical need, it can be a, a rich exercise to just dive into, if it's some kind of emotional urgency, where is this coming from? What part of me feels urgent right now? You know, where is the urgency coming from? I often say that attention is the currency of the psyche. Every part of us is hungry for attention. And especially the parts of us that have been ignored or neglected or repressed, they're starved for attention. You know? And sometimes, often that's what produces the urgency. This place that's been starved for decades for attention. You know? Um... Part of wise reparenting of ourselves is to give kind, loving, compassionate attention to all these places that feel urgency in us, all these places that have been have been crying out for some kind of attention. Um, Yeah, a tremendous amount of healing, transformational healing comes simply from sitting with and allowing places of inner wounding simply to come forward, unravel, and be however they need to be, you know. And any of these places, they, they'll present as pain, they'll present as you know, the worst thing ever, the worst place ever, you know, this sort of thing. But the truth is every part of us really needs love. Every part of us is made by love, is made of love, and is made for love. You know, and that, that's an important thing to keep in mind in healing work. As we're able to heal ourselves, as we're able to quiet ourselves, we're able to activate 
some of our deeper possibilities. Buddhism talks about the four illimitable minds, the four mind states without limit. And these are love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. The idea is that following any one of those four paths will ultimately lead us past the limits of ego. Now, what's funny about that list is I think we could all get behind, you know, love, compassion, and joy. Those are great. Those are wonderful, you know. Those, those are words that, that clearly are positive things. Equanimity, what on earth is that, you know? And so the word equanimity, it etymologically comes from equa anima, equal soul or equal mind state. The idea that my mind state will be equal whether I'm being presented with something I like or something I don't like, you know. And I think one thing that's helpful for thinking about equanimity is to think about it in terms of its near enemy. This is a Buddhist idea. The near enemy of a wholesome state is something that superficially resembles it, but doesn't have any of the benefit of the wholesome state. The near enemy of equanimity is stoicism. The person who's stoic appears not to have a reaction to anything. Like, things are good, things are bad, and they just they keep their, their stoicism, you know? But often stoicism is a kind of shutting off from emotion, shutting off from vulnerability, you know? I'm not going to feel anything so that I can always be rock solid the same on the outside, that kind of thing. Equanimity is very different. Equanimity is fully in touch with vulnerability, fully in touch with you know, passion, with feeling, with all of that, and able to remain balanced. It takes tremendous capacity to hold equanimity. Ultimately, within all of us, there is an edge of pure awareness. There's a place underneath our mind chatter, underneath whatever our heart is talking about, there's a place of pure awareness. And when we're in this pure awareness, there's no desire and there's no fear. And I think maybe some of us have had this experience in flow. The thing is, when we're in flow, we're so engaged with whatever thing we're doing, we're not paying attention to ourselves. And so we're not even aware that in that flow, we're not really feeling desire or fear. We're just in the flow, you know? But ultimately, we can, we can cultivate self-awareness in that place of pure awareness. One way to frame equanimity, because equanimity can kind of sound dry, there's this wonderful phrase that Tara Brock uses, a heart ready for anything. Equanimity is a heart ready for anything. You know, Tara Brock has a wonderful blog and I've, I've talked about it, I think a few weeks ago, I actually had a talk entitled Heart Ready for Anything, um, where I, I quoted this blog. Uh, but you can always find it if you just Google Tara Brock 
heart ready for anything, you'll always come to this blog. I've read it numerous times. It really is incredibly wise, incredibly compassionate and rich. You know, and part of having a heart ready for anything is really trusting ourselves. And trust does not come from the head. Trust is about, trust is something that lives in the core. You know, this deep knowing that each one of us is far more powerful and far more resilient than our strategic mind lets on. You know, each one of us is far more capable of facing whatever life hands us than we could ever imagine, you know. And so part of a heart ready for anything is just trusting that. Trusting that whatever life hands me, I'm going to be able to remain present to it. So I'm going to close with a kind of a practical example. You know, what what does it look like to be not attached to outcome, to have a heart ready for anything? Um, I'm going to quote a rather famous quote. This is a speech from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a speech that he gave. He was in Memphis on April 3rd, 1968. He had gone to Memphis to support a sanitation worker's strike. There were threats to his life, but he put his life on the line to support garbage men. That's what he was doing. And so he gave this, this, this is the close of this famous speech, sometimes known as the Promised Land speech. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know that we as a people will get to the promised land. I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That is what it looks like to be not attached to outcome and to have a heart ready for anything. Sadly, the next day, he walked out onto the balcony of the ring the Lorraine Motel, and he was shot to death. So this is the the last speech he ever gave, the Promised Land speech. So I'll share the quote sheet. First I'll share with the, the Zoomies. So on the quote sheet, I have the quote from the Bhagavad Gita, and I have the quote from Dr. King. And then a a great Zen master, Yoga, Yoda. Attachment leads to jealousy, the shadow of greed, that is. Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. From the poet, Alexander Pope. Blessed is he who expects nothing. 
for he shall never be disappointed. Jackson Kittard said, anything you can't control is teaching you how to let go. Isn't that lovely? Anything you can't control, especially anything you can't control and you don't like, it's teaching you how to let go. Gene Klein says, when any, what any desire really aims at is the state of non-desire. Non-desire is the state in which we demand absolutely nothing. Thus, it is a state of extreme abundance, of fullness. This fullness is revealed as being bliss and peace. You now know that you're really seeking nothing else but fullness and absolute peace. Alan Watts said, We're living in a culture entirely hypnotized by the illusion of time, in which the so-called present moment is felt as nothing but an infinitesimal hairline between a causative past and an absorbingly important future. We have no present. Our consciousness is almost completely occupied with memory and expectation. We do not realize that there never was, is, or no, nor will there be any other experience than present experience. We are therefore out of touch with reality. The Burmese teacher Ajahn Chah says, if you know how to hold on, if you hold on to any expectation, you miss the wisdom. It is impermanent. Be the one who knows the witness to it all. This is how trust grows. The poet W.S. Merwin said quite simply, today belongs to the few and tomorrow to no one. Love that quote. Ram Dass says, a feeling of aversion or attachment towards something is your clue that there's work to be done. The Dalai Lama said, attachment constrains our vision so that we're not able to see things from a wider perspective. Bruce Lee says quite, quite practically, I'm not in this world to live up to your expectations and you're not in this world to live up to mine. Very clear boundaries. Sarah Van Breathnack says, Today expect something good to happen to you no matter what occurred yesterday. Realize the past no longer holds you captive. It can only continue to hurt you if you hold on to it. Let the past go. A simply abundant world awaits. Eckhart Tolle said, How do you let go of attachment to things? Don't even try. It's impossible. Attachment to things drops away by itself when you no longer seek to find yourself in them. Tom Althaus says, To win or lose often depends on set parameters. Expand the bounds of what is possible, and you may come out the true winner outside the confines of its defining. Matteo Soul says, As an empath, it's vital that you learn how to hold space for your emotions, even the painful ones. By anchoring your breath, you can learn how to witness the emotional energies of others within you without attaching yourselves to these sensations. Christopher Dine says, it's impossible to control outcomes or results, although most of us have been programmed from a very young age to believe otherwise. The idea that we can perform actual magic causes tremendous dysfunction 
unnecessary suffering and prevents the development of emotional resilience. A couple from Steve Lissock, he said, we view our existence as a radio that needs fine tuning. We're constantly flipping through the mind generated frequencies in an attempt to find fulfillment and harmony. Love that image of like static here, static here. Oh, that was almost it, you know, more static. He also said, practice experiencing everything in a state of non-expectancy and non-attachment. The beauty of living will suddenly become clear. Valerie Setterwhite said, know that everything is in perfect order, whether you understand it or not. Mokokomo Mokokonoma says, sometimes we are very lucky to lose something or someone. Think about that. You know, when in your life were you very lucky to lose something that you were trying to hold on to? And John Lockwood Huey says, a wonderful gift may not be wrapped up as you expect.